Bob Harris has won two cars and a lot of money playing Jeopardy on television, but he insists he's not that smart. What he is, he says, is somebody who decided when he was going to be on Jeopardy to take measures. Uh, I told my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, hi, uh, I'm, I'm rearranging the furniture now, and um, I need to make my house look like the Jeopardy studio. I, I set up uh, like low uh, bookcases to be sort of like where the podiums were, about the same height. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I would stand there. I had a little homemade buzzer that I made out of uh, ballpoint pen and some masking tape. He got bright halogen lights and he pumped up the air conditioning to make it feel like the inside of a TV studio. He placed a big picture of Jeopardy's host, Alex Trebek, in about the spot where the real Alex Trebek stands. I even tried to time my meals to when, uh, when, when I would be eating at Jeopardy so that my whole body clock would be exactly in harmony. So he played along with videotapes of the TV show, and he studied for months, memorizing all kinds of stuff. The guys who ran the United Nations, in order. The presidents, in order. Rivers, the elements, British kings, the novels of E.M. Forster, which include, by the way, Room with a View, Where Angels Fear to Tread, Howard's End. The, the way to remember a lot of stuff is to, to build really big, goofy images. It takes an extra couple of seconds, uh, maybe even a minute or two of thought, but then it stays better. So it's time well invested. Uh, I made this big picture of uh, uh, in my head of uh, a room with a view. Okay, so you got this nice, really big, like, I, I, a friend of mine in Ohio grew up in this big mansion, so it's actually his living room in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, it's a room with a beautiful view. And Howard's End was the next one on the, on the list that I just happened to have in front of me. And so Howard's End, and you got a room with a view. I mean, how can you not have, like, Howard, this... I, I have a friend named Howard, okay? And so I made a 30-foot buttocks and stuck it in the window. So you have a room with a view of Howard's End where angels fear to tread. So the angels are in this room, and there's this giant 30-foot buttocks in the window. And That's why the angels know, fear to tread there. Who really wants to be there, really? All I can say is you do not want to know how he got passage to India in there. Bob says that a third of the answers that he gave on television, a third, came from cramming information into his head with these weird pictures that he would create for himself. One of his biggest wins came when, thanks to brute memorization, he knew the name of an old book called The Complete Angor, which to this day he has never read, has only the vaguest idea what it's about. And one of his biggest losses came when he could not remember the poem Jabberwocky. And I was particularly frustrated because this was my father's favorite poem, and he recited it to me pretty constantly. And yet uh, when they asked me about it under pressure, I just completely choked. And so Brillig became my nickname for some people. I wonder if the reason why you didn't remember it was because it wasn't part of your Jeopardy knowledge, but because it was part of your real knowledge. I I think that's exactly right. Uh, I I think uh, there's a lot of times in the game, um, most of the big mistakes I ever made were like that where it wasn't in my Jeopardy notebooks, my study materials, the almanacs. It's funny. It's sort of like it was in the wrong section of your brain. Yeah, exactly. It was in my real brain, the one I walk around with that doesn't have much in it. Talking to Bob about all this, you realize that a show like Jeopardy, a quiz show, any quiz show, on the surface, seems like it's about facts. You know, retrieving facts to win prizes. But what's really going on for the players is totally different than just retrieving facts. There's a whole inner world happening. An inner world that is not on TV at all. And in a world that actually may be a lot more interesting than what's in the program that's on TV. Well, today, we dive in to look at that inner world, at the secret life of quiz shows. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our program today in three rounds. Round one, Gamester of Ireland is fine. 
The round is about somebody who goes on to who wants to be a millionaire, and the most amazing thing he comes up with is not any fact, not any answer. It is the sheer courage to appear at all. Round two, dire enigmas for elite fans, where we visit with some of the best quiz masters anywhere on an all-weekend, all-day, all-night quiz bender. Round three, girls in need of safer time. By the way, if you are noticing anything special about these um, round names, five points for you as you play along at home. Anyway, round three is an attempt to use quiz shows, yes, quiz shows, to change teenage girls. Stay with us. Daquan, Gamester of Ireland is fine. When Ronan Kelly went to talk to the guy in this next story, all he knew about him was that he had won a lot of money on a quiz show on RTE, which is the main television station in Ireland. Ronan just figured that anybody who had won that kind of money must have some kind of story to tell. Anyway, the guy lived nearby. So Ronan got into his bike with his recording gear and he bicycled over to the guy's house. When he got there, he figured that the first thing they would do is watch the video of the guy on the quiz show. But although this man had won hundreds of thousands of pounds, he actually did not have the technology to do that. What you're about to hear is the story that Ronan put together for Irish radio about this guy. Uh, the guy is named Roger Doubts. When I got to Roger's house to watch the tape of his appearance, he didn't have a VCR. We had to go back to the radio station to watch it. Roger Dowd from Dublin. January 2001. Were you told to wave? Oh, yes, they made a big issue about waving and smiling and looking as happy as possible. He was a contestant in the quiz show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I should have put the word unlikely in there. Roger was an unlikely contestant, and you'll find out why as the programme unfolds. Silence in the studio, please. This is your question. Starting with the largest, arrange these Mediterranean islands in order of size. Starting with the largest. Crete. Cyprus, Sicily, Malta. Well, there was a phone number you could ring on RT, obviously, and I rang many times anyway with no luck. And eventually I got a call from someone to say I'd been shortlisted. It was a couple of days before the show, you know, they said, oh, you're allowed to have five phone of friends. I don't have many close friends, so I got two of my brothers. I got someone I played table tennis with. I got someone, a husband of someone I played badminton with, uh, a friend of my brother's. I think they were the five. Who got there quickest? Two right answers, but Roger Dowd's beat it at 4.9 seconds. 4.9 seconds. You know, I wasn't one of these so-called professional quiz people, you know. You know, I'm not an outgoing enough person to be like that, really, you know. People were astounded that I, I would think of going on who wants to be a millionaire. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our next contestant is Roger Dowds. He works as a maintenance assistant in a nursing home and he lives in Glasnevin in Dublin. And he specifically wants me to mention that his mother, Nora, is deceased but would be very proud indeed to see him on this show. Why did you say that? Well, I still was getting over my mother's death somewhat at the time. She wasn't. She was about three years dead at the time. Um, and she had been <laughs> such a part of my life. 
probably was quite concerned about my future, you know, when she died. And if he won a million, he says, he'd help the residents of the nursing home where he works to buy a place and run it however they please, and then he would love to have enough money. You know, because you don't really believe you're going to be on, and you go through a lot of questions, you know, what you might say in a circumstance, and you know, I kind of said something very frivolous or expecting not to ever be saying anything, you know. All right, good luck to you. Let's play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And for £100, answer this one, Roger. In the 1968 cartoon, what was the colour of the Beatles submarine? Was it blue, yellow, green or red? Um, yellow, okay. For £100, yellow is right, you got £100, Roger. Financially, how were things at the time? Was that an, an interest for you? I, uh, yes, it was a factor. Um, I, I never... <laughs> I never had sort of full-time employment ever in my life. I was, at the time, working in this home, but, you know, I was only working part-time. And I might have done the odd little odd job, but, you know, I was on a, an extremely low income. So, you know, I suppose the money aspect could be significant to me in my position. And not the other name, so the bill. Bill? It's my answer. For so £500? Yeah. You got it. It's the bill, £500. Did you practice first? No, there wasn't time to practice. I, I didn't practice at all. I remember going in the day and there were all the other contestants and they were, you know, some of them were poring over quiz books. And, I, you know, I just was trying to cope with being there and sort of, like, they made a tremendous day out of it. It was, you know, you were kind of treated like royalty, you know, we were chauffeur-driven in and... We, I think we got a very special lunch that no one else in RTE was getting. And <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, something different is happening today because I, I saw some of the people that I recognised who were actors in Fair City and, I don't know, one or two, someone who's in sport in RTE and, you know, different. You just saw these people and I don't know whether I'm starstruck or not. No doubt about that one. You have a £1,000. Gammon is the right <laughs> Now, you can never sit in the chair where Roger is sitting if you don't take those telephone numbers. They're 1550 71 71 71. I'll and remember that phone number for the rest of my life. <laughs> Do you want to tell the audience what happened to you in Morocco, Roger? Well, I, oh, no, I don't. You're going to make me anyway. <laughs> I was there last month, in fact, in December. I didn't so really want to be distracted by anecdotes. No Moroccan Durham, as they call the currency there, so being sort of a bit shy and retiring I wanted to get rid of him and <laughs> all I could find was an Irish where does this sensitivity come from and this lack of confidence come from um, I'm still trying to work that one out um, well I was un, un, uncommonly close to my mother and I was um, reluctant to go out into the world and do things as a result I, I you know it was almost reclusive in kind of way because I didn't go out and I, I did go to college for a while and it didn't work out. This is in your early 20s? Yeah, I was about 21 at the time. GAA fan, are you? I'm actually not particularly, but I'm, I had that answer before the counties came up, so I think I have, to, I have to go with that. Final answer, Kildare? Final answer. <laughs> 
and it makes you worth £8,000 right now. You know, my father, I suppose, was a little distant from us, you know. It was hard to um, get any sense of, you know, what he expected from us. Or, You know, I, I, I sort of feel in some ways he was a bit childlike, so sometimes I felt I, I was fighting for my mother's affection with him, you know. And, and we had this kind of slightly niggly sort of relationship as a result. Um, I, I suppose we were all a bit on our own little wavelength. I was somewhat younger than the rest, so I, I think that um, separated me a bit. Um, I feel, as it's, it's a historical question now, I have a brother who's, he is a bit of a historian, like he studied history, so um, I think maybe I should phone him as my brother Robert. Brother if... Robert. Okay. Robert. Hello. Hello, Robert. Y- yes, hello. <laughs> Good evening to you. This is Gay Byrne on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Hello. And your brother Roger has made it to the hot seat. And he needs your help in answering the question, all right? Thank you very much. There are four possible answers to this question. The next voice you hear will be his. And, Roger, you have 30 seconds starting now. Uh, Robert, uh, where did the Ascard land guns for the Irish volunteers in July 1914? Uh, was it Banastrand, Hoth, or Arklo? Hoth. Thank you very much. You're sure about that? Um, <laughs> yeah. About 95%. Okay. I, thought it, I thought it might be that myself, so thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Um, I go with that. Um, Hoth. Hoth. Final answer? Final answer. Could Roger be right in saying Hoth for the answer? We'll take a break here. Come back to us after this. Thank you. Can you remember the day you decided that college wasn't for you or that college wasn't working out? Oh, I didn't feel part of anything uh, there. I, um, and, you know, I had all sorts of essays and assignments that I was supposed to have done and I hadn't started on anything. And I just one day I, I didn't go in. and uh, Like, I was so lacking in resources to deal with things then that I, I couldn't tell anyone I actually... Um, pretended for a whole term to to go to college and I, I spent most of the days you know like a homeless person walking around town or um, whatever I did I brought in my sandwiches as I, as I normally had done and my brother in particular was trying to get me to go back but you know it just didn't seem possible as simple as that. Ascard land guns for the Irish volunteers in July 1914? He had to check with his brother Robert. Robert said Hoth. He went with Hoth. That was his final answer. And it means he's worth £16,000. <laughs> the next question is worth £32,000, Roger. Okay. OK. Have a look at it. Who was the first person to run a mile in under four minutes. I couldn't believe my luck with this question. Sebastian Coe, Harold Abrahams. You're shaking Eric your head. Yeah, because yeah. I'm going to know it before I, I see any answers. Well, I think you arranged this question for me because it just happens it's my namesake, Roger Bannister. I've always had an interest in athletics. So, um, 
quite sure about this one, Roger Bannister, in 1954, I believe it was. <laughs> Roger, don't confuse me with dates. I'm sorry, yeah. Sorry. Just I felt I should be offering more information. <laughs> Whatever about the angels, uh, Roger, I think Mum is looking after you as well, is she? Because she you just won 32,000 pounds. The crowd seemed to get particularly enthusiastic at that point. You must have all those cheques written out, do they? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. There's no writing involved. 32,000 pounds. And you get to keep that. Nobody no can take what. that from you, no matter what, that's yours, okay? okay? And you're right, Bannister did run the mile in 1954. Okay. Not that we asked you. Did your mother encourage you to go out into the world? She did try and encourage me when I left college. She was always looking at courses that I might do, you know, because I used to do the garden at home or I did a bit of cooking at home, you know. Oh, will you do a cookery course? Will you do a gardening course? Will you, you know, just to see me doing something... But then, you know, I gradually, as my parents got older, they, they became, started becoming infirm and I did become more of a benefit, you know, because I, I just became their, you know, chauffeur and stuff like that. Was it a time you felt good I, about yourself? I think I got, felt better, you know, that I, I had some little sense of duty in doing something. Because when I was first at home and my parents were still a bit active, you know, it was... You know, I remember literally um, sometimes the people came in during the day and maybe they thought I should be out. You know, I'd actually hide, literally hide under the bed, you know, a grown man in his 20s or uh, just to avoid, you know, having to explain myself. Or... That must have made you so angry. Um, I, I, you know, I was very... Um, I I couldn't express anger, you know, I was such a, I, I don't know, such a, well, withdrawn from anger, like I was angry some way, but I didn't recognise it as anger. Right? Well, I was so full of self-hatred, I, I, you know, I didn't have any sense of self-esteem, so I think because of that I couldn't do things at all. Um... I think as I have nothing to lose, I shall go for Venus as my final answer. That's your final answer? Final answer. Venus, final answer. <laughs> you had £32,000, Roger. You now have Biscuits are from the Waterbrook Cookery book. My Tea and biscuits in Roger's house. The biscuits are on a plate bought by his family to support the Protestant side in a 1957 boycott where Catholics boycotted Protestant businesses and Protestants, like Roger's family, bought things to keep those businesses alive. She compiled a cookery book which seemed to go all around Protestant communities around Ireland. Roger felt isolated as a child. And the fact that he was part of a minority community only made that feeling of isolation more intense. But being a Protestant also got him out of the house. 
He travels miles to play racket sports in clubs that used to be exclusive to his church, something that's no longer the case, and he's glad of that. He goes out to play the organ at church services, and through the church community, he found work in a retirement home set up originally for Protestant residents. I mean, it has been a tremendous experience over the years. I, you know, I met some very special people who have well passed away because they were old and I had a very well my mother died at the end of 1997 and shortly after that a woman called Joyce Shouldice came into the home and she just was a tremendous excuse me crying but gift to me at the time she just for her you know, from the generation she came from, she was a person of rare understanding and you could tell her anything and she was unshockable and, um, you know, because of the kind of maybe slightly narrow environment I've been living in, I felt, um, you know, things had to be kept secret and um, kind of hidden and, um, you know, suddenly I got this different perspective. I feel very strongly that it's, that it's Patrick Kavanagh. I think Louis McNeese died earlier than 1967. So I'll go for Patrick Kavanagh um, as my final answer. Final answer. Final answer, Gay. No turning back. No turning back. We've gone Too to late. Orange. That was one of the most surprising pieces of thinking I've seen on the show so far. And it's one of you all Around the time I uh, was on a Once Be Millionaire, I started going to a counsellor who I'm still going to. I think she's, you know, helped <laughs> with sort of relieving me of the, the awful kind of self hatred. Why did you decide you needed her? I got very friendly with a, a, quite an elderly man, and um, as I say, it was the summer just before I went to school and... Um, oh, sorry, college, yeah. And I used to go and visit him. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, he started abusing me. And although I was 18, I, you know, I suppose I was 12, you know, I'd, I, I hadn't had sex education of any kind. I, I, um, I did, You know, I didn't really consent to anything, but... I allowed this to happen for about a year and uh, I don't know because I suppose in some way I valued <laughs> his attention then I you know finally because I'd never not confided in my mother so I, I did eventually confide in her about this and uh, it, it, it was a very difficult thing for her she was used to kind of 
sweeping things aside, putting them under the carpet. Did you? I lost a little bit of something with my mother that day, you know. It was, I'm sorry, I missed that. You, you what? I kind of lost a little bit of something with my mother. I, I, you know, I, I, I idealised her so much, and you know, she was so wonderful. And, um, and did you go back to the the elderly man? I went once. But I, I didn't. I remember going once to the door and talking to him, and I, I made up some outlandish story and, well, lies. <laughs> um, so as a result of that, he, 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 you know, kind of didn't want to have anything more to do with me. <laughs> anyway, um, I suppose I pretended I'd gone off with someone else. You know. Um, <laughs> Did he think there was something else in what you were doing? How do you mean, sorry? Well, did he see it as a, in the same way as you did, or did he see it as something else? Did he see it as abuse, or did he see oh, it as no, a relationship? I, I, no, he probably saw it as a relationship or something. Um, he, he, I don't think he, he would have had any sense of the <laughs> abuse I was feeling. At that point, um, I think I... I could have let anyone <laughs> do anything to me, you know. I, I, you know, I'd so little self-esteem. I suppose I couldn't. I could, you know, I couldn't. You know, it's like as if I became mute and I couldn't shout stop. I'm very sure I know this one, Gay. <laughs> I believe the audience's response. <laughs> that we're going to collapse. Quickly, They're uh, really behind you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well Extraordinarily. I, so. I explain the situation yeah. you're in, Roger. <laughs> you have £125,000. You walk now. There's the cheque. I have it. You can walk now with that. If you go for this and get it wrong, you lose £93,000. It's a bit drastic, all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I do know a bit about birds, and that is my final answer. Okay. Final answer. Final answer. <laughs> you had £125,000, Roger. You now have two hundred. <laughs> the old audience had won us themselves. Imagine having to take home a cartload of money or. If I want to shed a few tears now, I all I was going through my head was that Gay Byrne himself had lost a lot of money. Don't start <laughs> crying on me at this day. <laughs> the next question is worth half a million pounds. I feel the... I want to look at it actually. <laughs> <laughs> look at it. Okay. Ah, now what do you think of that? What does a vexil? Ologist study. I didn't think much. Vexillologist <laughs> um, study. Is it? I think my brain had seized up. I, I couldn't. Scorpions. Come up with anything. Flags. 
or skin diseases. Vexillologist. And if you look at me and say, funnily enough, gay, I know the answer. Funnily enough, I know. You were very entertaining, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I was surprised, you know, how many people thought I was entertaining. No, um, I'll have to be quite honest. Were you disappointed? Um, you hadn't got an easy one. Well, I, I couldn't believe my luck up to that. I, I, you know, I was carried on and the tide of wanting to keep going, just not even to do with the money, just I was enjoying being up there in some way. So I, I didn't want to stop. <laughs> What's the word? I, I shall retire now, or whatever I should say. Um. To get all this positive feedback from other people was extraordinary. To, to feel I was, you know, worth something and, and people could admire me. And <laughs> It says, pay Roger Dowds £250,000. Take it with our blessing and our thanks to a lovely, lovely competitor and played extremely well. You deserve it. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Enjoy. And, and did friends and family deal differently with you afterwards? Not enormously. I, I, well, I think they admired me for having done it, but um, like I'm the youngest of my family and I think maybe I was always seen as very kind of vulnerable or sensitive or... And maybe they felt they'd less reason to be worried about my future. So what has that future been for Roger? What did he do with the hundreds of thousands? Well, he uses it as an income to supplement part-time work, gardening and house-minding. It also allows him time to visit elderly people and do messages for them. I was persuaded that I, you know, that I absolutely had to get an alarm for the house. I went on a nice organised cycling holiday in France, I remember. and I went skiing. I'd never been skiing. The main thing Roger got from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire wasn't the money, it was self-confidence. Well, I think I'm a lot less shy than I was, perhaps. I'm, you know, I've more sense of well-being within myself, you know. I don't, I don't have the awful self-hatred. In his modest house, with his very modest car outside, Roger has one luxury to show for his night on the telly with Gay a piano organ. Ronan Kelly's story about Roger Dowds from the Irish radio program Flux on RTE Radio 1. It was a winner of the Third Coast International Audio Competition, which is where we heard of it. Since this show aired, Roger Dowds has picked up another award. He won a gold medal for Ireland in tennis at the Out Games competition of gay and lesbian athletes in Montreal. Coming up, can quiz shows save the world? One woman believed yes. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week in our program, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, The Secret Life of Quiz Shows. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Dire Enigmas for Elite Fans. Every winter, there is this event at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology where some of the country's very best puzzle solvers go up against the very best puzzle writers. It's called the MIT Mystery Hunt. And what it is is a series of puzzles, word puzzles, number puzzles, scavenger hunts, picture puzzles, puzzles which don't even have a name. And eventually what uh, all this leads to, this takes all weekend or longer, what it leads to, the final answer leads you to a coin hidden somewhere on the MIT campus. This is a team competition. The teams are made up of MIT students and also uh, elite puzzle solvers who fly in from around the country for the event. One of our producers, uh, Lisa Pollack, joined them for last year's contest. Uh, she was following a team called Dr. Awkward. And um, for those of you who are playing along at home, Dr. Awkward is spelled D-R period awkward, A-W-K-W-A-R-D. Give yourself two points if you notice that that is a palindrome spelled the same forwards and backwards. Here's Lisa. When you hang out with a puzzle team, you hear a lot of stories like Dave Dickerson's. When Dave was just a kid, he got this book. He'll never forget the title. Puzzles, 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 puzzles. Actually, the title might have just been Puzzles, but that's what the cover said. Dave was obsessed with this book. The puzzles were harder than any he'd ever seen, but he couldn't put them down. And I even remember when I saw one of the clues, not an elegant clue by modern standards, but it said, uh, damn, I'm trying to fix these socks. And the answer was darn. The darn socks, you know, and, the, and, <laughs> and I, thought, I get that. And I solved it. It was the first clue I had actually solved. And I thought, I can do this. I'd never been challenged this much in my life, and I didn't realize I could do it. Not only could Dave do it, he found it impossible to stop doing it. Which is how, almost 30 years later, he ended up here, standing in an MIT classroom with the rest of the Dr. Awkward team, warming up for the mystery hunt. And by warming up, I mean they were plugging in their laptops and setting up a snack table. This was an experienced team with about 45 people on the roster. And as far as brain power goes, they were an intimidating crew. Crossword champs, PhDs, a guy handing out DVDs of his recent appearance on Jeopardy, two guys whose T-shirts I needed help deciphering, and this man, whose nickname I'm still trying to figure out. Ukavu, uh, spelled U-C-A-O-I-M-H-U. And it's from my real name, Kevin Wald. You split it up as Kev in W. Ald. Ald is an archaic form of the word old, so you take an old-style W, which is two U's. You take Kev the way it's in the original Irish spelling, which is C-A-O-I-M-H, and you put it in the two U's, so you get Ukabu. We're definitely a dangerous team. There's no question about it. That's Dave again. He's the person who invited me to hang out here. And he warned me that the puzzles I'd see his team solve that weekend wouldn't be what most of us imagine when we think of puzzles. Mystery hunt puzzles are so elaborate, so complex, that lots of times they don't even have instructions. Just a page of words or pictures or numbers arranged in some cryptic way, which means you've often got to solve a puzzle just to know what puzzle you're trying to solve. So, for example, the first puzzle hunt, or maybe one of the first, the guy who did it did a puzzle in Linear A, which is an old language, I think it's older than Greek, very, very primitive ancient language. And he didn't tell anyone it was Linear A. And he took the only two books on Linear A out of the MIT library. People solved it anyway. Hey, everybody! How you doing today? That's right! 
mystery hunt started with an opening ceremony put on by last year's winning team. They're called the Evil Midnight Bombers Would Bomb at Midnight. That's the way the hunt works. The group that won last year's hunt designs and runs this year's contest. Dozens of teams packed the lobby of an MIT building. And though they were competing, from what I could tell, the mood seemed pretty friendly. The Evil Midnight Bombers kicked things off with a skit, then all the teams headed off to various locations around campus, and the solving began. So what do you do with F-N-T-L-L-L-L-L-S-N-N? Those just might be an index to something else. It might not even be an index to something in this round. That's Jeremy and Tripp, two Dr. Awkward teammates, standing at a blackboard a few hours into the hunt. Now I'll be honest, as a spectator sport, competitive puzzle solving has some problems. Most of the time there wasn't much to see. Just people huddled in small groups around laptops and conferring over printouts batting around one idea after another until they hit on an answer. The the third one is Gilligan's Island. Who's writing this down? Things seemed to be going pretty well. The blackboard was filling up with answers, and new puzzles kept coming. But there were some stumpers, too. And that doesn't look promising. So look at last letters. (laughs) The name of this puzzle was Continental Divide. It was one of those no-instruction puzzles. There was a sheet of paper with a bunch of pictures of DVD movie covers on it. And the covers were arranged in a grid, six boxes across and five down. The bottom right-hand box was empty. All the titles on the covers were blacked out. Finding those was the easy part. Turns out all the films had a city, state, or country in the name. Raising Arizona, Road to Singapore, The Tailor of Panama, and so on. The answer, everyone agreed, had something to do with those place names. But what? Were they trying to put a title in the missing box? Spell a sentence from a combination of letters? I watched for more than an hour as at least a dozen different people tried together to figure it out. Annapolis, Dallas, Essex, Cancun, all of these in this column do not end in vowels. They plotted the names on a map. They typed them into a spreadsheet. They put them in a grid and they color-coded them by continent. No pattern was too absurd to consider. Arizona iced tea, Singapore sling, Panama hat. I still think we might be able to get drinks out of India pale ale? India pale ale. Okay, yeah, these are drinks across. Oh, my God. They could not have been more wrong. I like the idea from half an hour ago where we were mapping these things to letters. The answer ended up having something to do with DVD country codes, but they didn't know that yet. For now, despite all the work, they weren't getting anywhere. At times I couldn't believe they were actually doing this for fun. But for puzzle people, the struggle is part of the fun. It's not in vain, because they know that somewhere out there, there's an answer. I mean, somebody can say something in the next 15 seconds that will just break this whole thing wide open. That's Eric, a veteran of the team. And what he's talking about there, that flash of insight, that aha moment when something suddenly becomes clear, that's the payoff. An observation that nobody else saw, seeing through the problem. That's difficult to do, and I'm not going to do it on every puzzle. I'm not one of the, the geniuses around here. But I am able to contribute something, and I'm just waiting for that to happen. You don't have to solve a puzzle to have an aha moment. But puzzles, if you're a puzzle person, are a pretty reliable way to get them. As opposed to real life, where, as a team member named John pointed out to me, most problems don't come with their own answers. You know, it's very different trying to figure out, why does my daughter hate me? (laughs) And how can I help her? Because there's no solution to that, you know, versus, okay, what are those numbers in the background of the evil video? Are they trying to say some message there? This, you get the joy of, okay, at least you got the answer. And you know that you got the answer. I just want to work on something.
is right now 1.23 in the morning, and we're in the sixth round. We've got tons and tons of puzzles in these rounds. When I caught up with Ukavu, the Dr. Aqua team had been solving puzzles for 13 and a half straight hours. The desks were covered with empty food containers, and the classroom was starting to smell like a dorm room whose residents hadn't showered in a while. Some team members had gone home to sleep, and a night crew with fresher brains had shown up to relieve them. But Ukavu, like a lot of the 20 or so people here, had been there since the start. How, how are you feeling right now? Uh, right now I'm feeling tired, and I'll probably leave within the next hour or so. Fortunately, what I'm working on now is a nice, gentle kind of puzzle. And by a nice, gentle kind of puzzle... What Ukuvu meant was a grid that looked kind of like a crossword puzzle, only with no blacked in squares, no numbers, and no clues. I repeat, no clues at all. Just empty boxes. Oh, and in the background, a red cross, like on an English flag. And yes, they solved it. I stuck around that night watching until six in the morning. And what struck me about the whole scene was how matter-of-fact everyone was. Like there was nothing out of the ordinary here as if this was the most normal thing in the world. Men and women, some college students, but plenty with spouses and kids at home, staying up all night in a college classroom, solving puzzles. But the next day, as the hunt stretched into its 30th hour, I caught up with Dave, the guy who invited me here. And he told me that as a puzzle person, he was constantly being reminded that the rest of the world doesn't work this way. Just the other day, he'd gone into a bar. And when the female bartender came over, he told her about this cool new anagram he'd heard. How if you take the phrase a dream within a dream and rearrange the letters, you get, what am I, a mind reader? This didn't go over so well. The bartender, apparently finding this fact neither interesting nor charming, just looked at Dave like he was weird. Dave told me that years ago, while he was working as a greeting card writer for Hallmark in Kansas City, he actually got in trouble for doing this kind of thing. My mentor came to me and said, Dave, we have to talk. And he said, uh, Dave, um, you're using too many literary illusions in your casual speech, and people are complaining. Wait, wait, in, in your speech, not in your greeting cards. Right, right, just just in my everyday speech. Uh, so, yeah, I, I knew better than to use obscure illusions in greeting cards, goodness gracious. Uh, I asked my supervisor, what the hell does that even mean? And he said, I was just told to tell it to you. Dave started obsessing about this. He wasn't even sure what the problem was. So he began keeping track. One week, every time he had the urge to say something at work, he wrote it in a notebook instead. By the end of that week, my notebook was full of the most random crap. None of it was a literary illusion. Maybe, Dave thought, the problem wasn't him. He'd recently been transferred from the humor department to the serious writing staff. And he was surrounded by all these new people who probably just didn't understand him. I, I was still doing lunch with the guys from Humor. You know, that, that was I, what I felt was my real home, and I could be myself there. Uh, and uh, so I was at lunch with them, maybe two or three weeks later, and one of the guys, as we were going to lunch, said, you know, and it, was, it was a cluster of us, five or six of us all heading toward the lunchroom, and one of the guys said, you know, we do a lot of monkey cards and yet, you mean, you mean cards with pictures of monkeys? Or? Yes, yes, more or less, because what he actually said was, and yet, they're all illustrated with chimpanzees, and chimpanzees aren't monkeys, are they? And I said, because I had done a report on this in fourth grade, and because it was something of an obsession of mine, monkeys, apes, and so on, was I said, actually, chimpanzees are apes, along with orangutans, gorillas, and, uh, and, and gibbons. 
And in fact, one of the weird things about Planet of the Apes is they don't have any gibbons in them. The orangutans that they claim are orangutans look like gibbons, uh, but and the way you distinguish apes uh, from monkeys is uh, apes have no tails and they're not exclusively arboreal. And there was this pause. And I said, uh, actually, there's a whole subset of other animals that are like uh, like monkeys called prosimians, and they include like the lemur and the tarsier and the kikachu and the galago, also called the bush baby. And uh, they're really goofy looking. And, and boy, if they had a planet of the prosimians, I would totally watch that movie. And there was a further pause. And one of my friends uh, said, oh, Dave, hey, so, you know, speaking of animals, would you like to see the rat's ass that I give? And I thought, oh, that's my problem. I inform people against their will. So what you're saying is that the thing that can be very annoying in the real world is the same thing that makes you really good at solving puzzles. Yes, yes. And uh, However, although I, I also feel obliged to point out that uh, perhaps, perhaps the more important point, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the thing that makes me annoying in the regular world is not annoying here. This environment is one of the only places where I can say something like that and not worry that I might be irritating someone by saying it that even if it's not relevant people at least understand the impulse on a puzzle team Dave can be himself only better and I think this is true for a lot of people whose talents require the right context in which to shine think about it a boxer without a boxing ring is just a guy punching people in a puzzle competition a guy with a mind for obscure facts can be a star. Yes! <laughs> 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 Lisa Pollock, the 2007 MIT Mystery Hunt was won in 38 hours and 14 minutes by none other than the Dr. Awkward team, whose members immediately began planning for this year's hunt, which was won two weeks ago by the team Evil Midnight Bombers What Bomb at Midnight. If you'd like to try some of these mystery hunt puzzles yourself, you can find them all by Googling MIT Mystery Hunt. And um, God have mercy on your soul. I'm a little intellectual, someone who knows it all. I can feel something special. You can be my new York all my fault. Smaller than you, smaller than you, smaller than you. Can't you see I'm smaller Act three, girls in need of safer time. Robin Epstein remembers the ad. There was a hospital nursery full of babies, and one baby girl tosses off her pink knit cap. It lands on the floor. This inspires other little baby girls to do the same. Pink hats come flying off of heads. Finally, the first little baby girl raises her little baby fist into the air as Helen Reddy sings, I am woman. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore Please. Don't stand up in your cars. This is an ad for the um, Oxygen Network, All Women's Network, just about to go on the air, February 2nd, 2000, which Robin found completely thrilling. It was this really wonderful moment of, here we go. This was it sort of heralded our arrival and the birth of the network and the excitement behind it. And it was like, it felt like it was something really to cheer for. Robin had just gotten a job on a brand new show on this brand new network. 
There's a quiz show for teenage girls called Clued In. Robin was going to write all the questions in the quiz. And she did this with a real sense of mission. It just seemed like a fantastic idea for a show to me, which was to get teenage girls on a quiz show and to show how show the world, really, how smart they were. Show the world and show other teenage girls? Uh, absolutely. And I wanted to show that these were the girls that you should be looking up to, that, the, that yeah. there were, in fact, role models that you weren't seeing. Right, and they're, they're, they walk among us. They're, they're everyday girls. That's right. Yeah. Did you know about these studies at the time that I think the researcher was named Gilligan? Yeah, Carol Gilligan. Absolutely. Yes, I think it was basically um, until the age of 11 or so. Mm -hmm. Girls um, in class, they are constantly raising their hands. It's important that they look smart. They want to impress their teachers. And so they're constantly all about giving the right answer and and reading and researching and whatnot. And, Mm -hmm. And then there is something that happens to these girls at like age 12 or 13 where it inverts and suddenly appearing smart is not important at all for the majority of them. And, and when you began this show, did you know about that research and did you believe it? I absolutely knew about the research. I didn't buy it. I thought, no way. I mean, sort of based on my own experiences in school. I was in a public school, but a lot of my friends were really smart girls. And yeah. we were all sort of, you know, very pleased with, you know, being high achievers and doing all this stuff. And I just thought, that research is, is a crock. You know, where was this woman going? What schools? How many girls did she actually um, interview? Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Ian and it's time to get clued in. And just describe what the early shows were like, what kinds of questions there were, how people would respond. Right. So in the early shows, we would ask a range of questions. And I thought that there was a baseline of things that clued in people should be aware of and should know. All right, here's the question. When stocks rise, it's a bull market. What animal symbolizes a market decline? Allison. Chicken? No. <laughs> Good guess for those. Janine. A bird? No, that's incorrect. You want to give it a shot, Jacqueline? No. No, you don't? You don't want to embarrass yourself? <laughs> All right, it's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a bear. It's a bear market. Okay, don't worry about it. You still got so is that pretty typical? So well. Yes. Uh, there started to be a creeping sensation that the questions were way, way too hard. Um, when she came out with chicken. <laughs> um, that's where I thought, oh, okay, we have a problem. Here we go, 500-point follow-up, same category. What losing presidential candidate lost the use of his hand in World War II? Three seconds, Emily. Teddy Roosevelt? No. Anybody else want to give it a shot? Come on, no. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Yeah, World War II. With the girls out there not able to get answers, not able to get these answers, did you ever feel a little guilty? You know what I mean? Like you're doing them a disservice. You're making them look bad. Oh, absolutely. Every day. Um, it was one of these things where when they had the blank stares and the they were not ringing in on their buzzers, I would sort of sit there and I just had my hand on my forehead sort of looking down and just feeling like, what have I done? Like I have put them in this position. It is my fault that they cannot answer that I have that I am in fact not only am I not showing that girls are smart I have put on the air that girls are are, are stupid that's really good and actually Lauren that's wrong too so you, you don't get any points I'm sorry all right Jasmine are you ready here's your first question 
now the now this is a show on a network for women, and it's aimed at girls. Yes. Why is the host a guy? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, we actually auditioned um, scores of women to be hosts of the show. Mm-hmm. There was one girl who was possibly she was possibly a good fit for the show, and 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 um, she was not really pretty enough to be on TV. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. She was good, but she wasn't just pretty enough. Um, yes. Even on this uh, like sort of pro woman network. Even on the We Love You for What's on the Inside Network, yes. And and what did you think when you saw that go down? Did you just feel like, okay, well, whatever, it's television? There, yeah. I mean, you know, we were TV people. And so there was, and the assumption also was that if we wanted teen girls to be interested, maybe we give them a little eye candy. And the host uh, that we chose sort of had a passing resemblance to Matt Damon. He was like a Matt Damon type. And here's the question. What amendment gave women the right to vote? Kosi. There you go, Kosi. It's all Three seconds. Eight. Nine. Say nine. The guy. No, wait. That's right. Wait, 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 so the girls are, are, can't answer most of the questions that you've designed for the show. What do you do? You dumb down questions. Uh, you give them things that anyone, anyone of any age, of any mental capacity could possibly answer. Jesus is known as the son of whom? Fame. God. God, that's right. So you're up to 4,000 points. Evie, you've got 3,250. Which one do you want to go with? All right, I'll take this spells disaster. This spells disaster. Here's the question. Without fumbling, who can spell her first name backwards? Katie. E-I-T-A-K. There you go. She's on the board. Yeah. That wasn't one of my prouder moments as a question writer. Which one would you like to go with? I'll take sign me up, please. Sign me up. All right. This is actually a physical challenge. We want to see who can get an autograph on their arm from the cutest boy in the audience. All right, Rachel, here you go. Here's a pen. You've got 15 seconds. Go right now. 15 seconds. Come on, cheer for 15 seconds. No. So this point, they're running through the audience with pens. And isn't this pretty much exactly the kind of boy-crazy uh, culture that you were trying to um, n- not encourage? Yes. This was um, <laughs> it was pretty much exactly the opposite of what we were trying to show with the show. And that did kind of make me sad that, you know, that here are these, they're the ones who are on air and who should be the role models. And, and um, it was pretty disappointing. To, to realize that even though um, we were trying to find them and to show this, we were failing at it. What would be your dream car? Um, I guess my dream car would be a Mustang. A Mustang? Like a new one or an old one? Uh, whatever. Like, probably- and so when you got into this, your whole idea was like, okay, let's show how smart uh, girls are. Um, and at the end of this experience, how did you feel? I felt um, girls are dumb. Girls are dumb. Girls are dumb. Just listen to yourself. I know. This experience remains one of these things that I'm not entirely sure how to explain. I do think women are smart. But the lesson of what I saw versus what I want to believe um, is very different. But is it possible the girls were smart but just not smart in a way that could be made apparent in a trivia quiz? 
Yes. I just think that um, for a lot of it, the girls seemed much more interested in um, just sort of showing this really superficial side to themselves. You know, that it was all about sort of what they looked like and it was all about how they were presenting themselves as opposed to what was more on the inside or what seemed like good things to achieve. And Well, I wonder if it's just like in the end your mistake was was you just thought more people were like you than than really are and that's kind of the, the that's the mistake that runs the world basically. Yeah. I I mean I think that's probably the case. Um probably not many other girls were spending their weekends playing trivia pursuit with their friends. But I no longer feel like it is mine to try and improve um sort of the quality of girls. Uh that was maybe something, an idealistic something that I mm-hmm. um, had in my 20s. and Because um, you don't think they need it or because you think it's hopeless? Because I don't, I'm not sure it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like not to use the word hopeless, but um, yeah. hard, certainly. I don't, you know, and I don't know what can. I mean, I think there's just... I mean, I think that there. I think that there can be a, a role model per se that maybe could have this influence, but um, it's it's not a game show. Just coming up with certainly coming up with a quick fix or a quick answer or ringing in for something at the buzzer doesn't seem like the long term solution. Robin Epstein in New York. Our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself. Bob Harris, the Jeopardy champ that we heard from at the beginning of our program, has written a memoir about how he won and then lost on Jeopardy called Prisoner of Trebekistan. Special thanks today to Alex Kotlowitz, Dan Katz, Eric Albert, Scott Fudo, Purdy, and Dave Dickerson, the guy from Lisa's MIT story, who created our act names today, which are, are you ready? They are anagrams of each other. Gamester of Ireland is fine. Dire enigmas for elite fans. Girls in need of a safer time. Our website, where you can find our free weekly podcast, absolutely free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Borders and by Showtime's This American Life DVD. That's season one of our television show, now out on DVD. Information on the This American Life DVD available at borderstores.com. And the show that we originally had been planning for this week with the theme Tough Room which includes a visit to the very tough room that is the editorial offices of The Onion, will be here next week. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who has this announcement that I believe will come as a great relief to mothers everywhere. I no longer feel like it is mine to try and improve the quality of girls. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI. Public Radio International.